welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's Featured Article of the Month podcast for November 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google Podcasts and Podbean. Uh, my name is Dr. Sumit Das. I'm one of the journal education editors. And this month's featured article is entitled Safety of Antifibrinolytics in 6,583 Pediatric Patients Having Craniosynostosis Surgery. A decade of data reported from the multi-center Pediatric Craniofacial Collaborative Group. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome two of the authors of this article, Dr. Michael King, who's a pediatric anesthesiologist at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, and Dr. Susan Gooby, pediatric anesthesiologist at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome both to this podcast, Michael and Susan, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thanks. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, great. Can I start by asking you to explain who and what the Pediatric Craniofacial Collaborative Group is? The Pediatric Craniofacial Collaborative Group um, is a group of surgeons and anesthesiologists from um, 45 institutions. Um, this was created um, under the auspices of the Society for Pediatric Anesthesia. Um, so the member institutions contribute um, to a central registry um, held by the Pediatric Craniofacial Surgery Perioperative Registry, which is um, prospectively collected a uh, set of craniofacial cases that is used been, um, for various uh, studies on craniosynostosis surgery. Thank you. So what were the primary and secondary aims of this study? Oh, thank you for the question. The primary outcome evaluated was the rate of reported clinical seizures or seizure-like activity or thromboembolic events. And these were complications that were thought to be possibly attributed to antifibrinolytics. And these were in infants and children undergoing craniosynostosis surgery. So this outcome was compared in both children who received antifibrinolytics versus those who did not, as well as in patients who received tranexamic acid versus those who received aminocoproic acid. And then the secondary outcomes included a rate, the rate of antifibrinolytic use, age, specific surgical procedure, for example, open or endoscopic, and the type of antifibrinolytic use, such as TXA or uh, aminocoproic acid by calendar year. And we hypothesized that the reported rate of postoperative seizures would continue to be low, um, as we saw in our work from 2017. And we hypothesized that these were not associated with the use of antifibrinolytics. So how is the data collected and analyzed? And would you mind uh, just elaborating on the REDCap database that you use for these studies, please? Sure. So, so the member institutions um, submit data on various aspects of the anesthetic and um, surgical care um, for craniofacial surgeries. And this is um, stored in a central database um, using the REDCap system. So each member institution um, maintains their own local IRB approval, and then the REDCap database is maintained um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia by Paul Stricker, who was one of our co-authors on the study. All of the data is audited um, prior to analysis, including in this study. Um, so all of the studies that have come out of this registry um, uh, are using the database are reviewed by the um, Craniofish Collaborative's Scientific Review Committee prior to uh, the database query. Data for this study was collected between um, June of 2012 and then March of 2021. And we specifically queried data on patient demographic information, 
um, intraoperative and postoperative transfusion data, intraoperative surgical and anesthetic management data, postoperative management, and then patient adverse events, which included uh, seizures, seizure-like activity, and thromboembolic events. We also looked at laboratory data and the length of intensive care unit and hospital stay. Thank you. Can you please summarize the key findings from your database? I can do that. Um, basically, for uh, antifibrinolytic use, we report that a total of 6,583 patients having craniofacial surgery across 45 institutions were included in the analysis. The mean patient age was eight months, with 43% between zero and six months old, and 56% older than six months. 75% of our cohort were Caucasian, and 11% were syndromic. So antifibrinolytics were administered in 69% of cases, with the majority receiving TXA, this was 55%, and the rest receiving aminocoproic acid, which was about 14%. For the patients who were zero to six months of age, 45 received no antifibrinolytics at all. And when you break it down, of the ones who received antifibrinolytics, 45% uh, received TXA and 10% received aminocoproic acid. For patients greater than six months of age, 19% didn't receive any antifibrinolytic at all, and 80% received um, some sort of antifibrinolytic. And this was further broken down into 63% receiving TXA and 17% receiving mucoric acid. So just to summarize, for the use of antifibrinolytics in this cohort, the overall incidence was 69% in all of cases, even though uh, good practice statements and evidence-based uh, reports recommend that 100% of cases should be receiving those. So I think we have some room for improvement. And then to further report on the seizures, a total of 16 patients in the entire database experienced a clinical post-operative seizure or some sort of seizure-like movement the overall reported seizure rate was 0.24%, with a rate of 0.2 in patients not receiving antifibrinolytics and 0.26 in patients receiving either of the other antifibrinolytics. So really, that was no difference in the seizure rate in those who received antifibrinolytics versus those that didn't. When we compare in the antifibrinolytic group, the aminocoproic acid versus the TXA, we found that comparing seizure rates between aminocoproic acid, the rate was 0.44%, and no TXA was 0.22%. So even that, though that is double, it was not statistically significant difference, sorry. Um, and then furthermore, when we look at thromboembolic events, there were only four patients in the entire database that had a postoperative thromboembolic event. Two occurred in patients who did not receive antifibrinolytics, and two occurred in patients who received uh, TXA. Uh, so basically, we can report that in this large multicenter study that included open and minimally invasive craniosynostosis procedures across all ages, uh, there was no difference in postoperative seizures or thromboembolic events between infants and children receiving and not receiving antifibrinolytics interoperatively. Thank you, Susan. The, the median initial bolus dose of TXA was 10.3 milligrams per kilo, 
and the median infusion rate was five milligrams per kilo. Would you two say that this is the optimal dosing strategy? Um, I'll go ahead and answer that if that's okay. Uh, we've done a lot of work um, on pharmacokinetic modeling. And when we uh, look at the ideal dose that's recommended based on pharmacokinetic modeling, it is a range between 30 and 10 milligram per kilo loading dose. So we usually give that over 15 minutes and then follow it up with an infusion of five to 10 milligrams per kilo per hour. And given that TXA is a highly variable drug, this is the dose that's best predicted to keep the levels within therapeutic range. Together with our Italian colleagues, we actually have published that low, the lower dose, which is 10 and five, is non-inferior to the higher dose, which is 30 and um, 10. And so we can uh, say that the dose used within, for this study which was a median dose of 10.3 and an infusion rate of five is within recommendations based on our pharmacokinetic um, modeling. And if I could just expand a little bit, there's still some unknowns. We don't really know what the ideal plasma level is to inhibit fibrinolysis. It's been predicted to be over 20 mics per ml, but this is based on old in vitro studies. So there's still more work that needs to be done in um, figuring out what the ideal plasma level is that we're targeting. More recently, very interesting, uh, the mechanism of action of TXA, besides being an antifibrinolytic, has also uh, been uh, said to be an, a potent anti-inflammatory drug uh, at higher doses. And therefore, perhaps maybe we might be targeting higher plasma levels. Um, in my practice, I usually give the higher dose, which is 30 and 10, but we know from our studies that 10 and 5 it should be adequate to maintain plasma levels within that um, therapeutic range for antifibrinolytic activity. Just to roll back a little, you, you sort of drilled down a little bit on the patients in whom seizures were observed. What, what can we learn from this subset? So in general, what we observed was that uh, patients having seizures were younger, more medically complex, and were undergoing more invasive procedures. Uh, so the seizure rate was observed to be higher in patients who were older than six months uh, versus those under six months. And we chose that age cutoff because it um, roughly estimates those um, who would be having um, the minimally invasive versus um, some of the open procedures that are done after six months. And, and we did find that um, patients having open versus minimally invasive procedures were more likely to have seizures. So uh, that's a 0.3% um, rate of seizures we observed in the open population versus just a 0.06% rate that we observed in the minimally invasive population. So about a five-fold increase. Syndromic patients were significantly more likely to have seizures than non-syndromic patients. Um, we observed that of the 16 patients who had um, seizures or seizure-like activity, Five of them, or 31%, um, carried a syndrome of diagnosis, and that was statistically significant. Patients carrying physical status class of three or four were significantly more likely to have seizures than those who were classified as class one or two. Um, 10 of the 16 patients, or 62.5% of those who had seizures or seizure-like activity, were classified as physical status three or four, and that was also statistically significant. Um, there was no difference we observed in the dosing scheme um, for either antifibrinolytic, that's either aminocoproic acid or transacamic acid, when comparing the patients who were in the seizure versus the non-seizure group. Thank you. 
Um, and just briefly moving on to the thromboembolic events, can, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about the four cases you observed? All of the patients who had thromboembolic events underwent open procedures for multiple sutures, so they were complex patients. Um, one occurred in a patient who had a femoral um, central venous catheter, and two occurred in patients um, who had femoral arterial lines. Two patients were syndromic, um, and one patient had Cruzan syndrome, and another had Pfeiffer syndrome. Two of the patients received intraoperative pressors for hypotension, uh, with one receiving phenylephrine and one receiving epinephrine. I really wanted to add and that tranexamic acid is a clot stabilizer, not a clot promoter. We know this from large multicenter trials in many different patient populations, including high-risk groups. And they've concluded that there's not any additional risk for venous thromboembolic events uh, or renal artery uh, occlusion or any a sort of thromboembolic vascular event associated with TXA. And we all need to remember that um, blood transfusion is associated with an increased risk of a venous thromboembolic event. So there's many different um, you know, variables that need to be taken into consideration when we when we look at a patient who might potentially have a venous thromboembolic event, even if they do receive tranexamic acid, we actually know from large multicenter randomized trials that TXA is a clot stabilizer, not a clot promoter, and that there is no additional risk, even in high-risk groups. Thank you for clarifying that, Susan. So can I just ask to be devil's advocate here, are there any patient groups you would advise that we avoid the use of TXA in? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's three absolute contraindications. Number one is hypersensitivity. Uh, so previous exposure and known hypersensitivity or allergic reaction. I've never seen anybody who's had that. Uh, number two is an active thromboembolic disease. And number three is fibrinolytic conditions with consumptive co coagulopathy. There are some relative risks uh, that we need to consider. We always need to look at the risk-benefit ratio for sure. For patients with renal impairment or dysfunction, there needs to be a dose adjustment based on the risk of excretion of, of the drug um, renally, so you want to avoid accumulation. Uh, secondly, relative uh, contraindication would be those patients with acquired or inherited disorders of thrombosis. And thirdly, those with pre-existing coagulopathy or oral anticoagulants. And finally, I might add that certainly in the adult trauma literature, there is some concern in patients who ha might have fibrinolytic shutdown. Uh, and that is a concern for giving TXA. They may be at a higher risk uh, for adverse effects to TXA if these patients have fibrinolytic sh the shutdown. And what they're recommending is that, uh, especially for the trauma population, that TXA administration be guided by viscoelastic testing. So that's TEG, Rotem, Quantra, um, whatever uh, one you have in your hospital their viscoelastic testing is showing that they have a hyperfibrinolytic state, uh, then, it, then TXA is indicated. I hope that answers your question. It does. Can I just double check? You, you would give the same answer regarding the dosing in a trauma situation in a child? 
the same doses are recommended based on uh, pharmacokinetic modeling. Uh, and you can extrapolate the CRASH-2 trial, um, which said to give one gram now and one gram later within three hours, the first dose. Uh, and uh, I've always wondered why they've used that one gram. And mm. I think that's how much it comes in a vial. But in all of those big multicenter studies, nobody's done any uh, pharmacokinetic um, dosing uh, for, for those studies. It's always been one gram now, one gram later. Uh, one size doesn't fit all in pediatrics. As you know, we like to think about precision medicine in our pediatric mm. patients, and therefore a dosing guideline based on milligram per kilo based on uh, pharmacokinetic modeling, I think is the best dosage for our very vulnerable pediatric patients. So what research question in your field of pediatric craniosynostosis surgery would you like to see addressed next? So the pediatric uh, craniofacial collaborative group is currently working on consensus guidelines for management in craniosynostosis surgery. Um, this involves reviewing the current evidence for practice patterns, which includes antifibrinolytic use, uh, monitoring, as well as preoperative optimization, and some other topics. Um, with the huge increase we've seen in studies and data um, in craniosynostosis surgery over the past 10 years, um, we're hopefully hoping that we can get some um, really good recommendations uh, for open craniosynostosis surgery. I'd like to jump in and just talk a little bit about uh, uh, broadly um, how antifibrinolytics fit into the picture of uh, patient blood management. Um, I don't know if you know, listeners are aware that patient blood management uh, is a new standard of care to optimize our patients' blood health. Patient blood management involves the timely multidisciplinary application of evidence-based multimodal medical and surgical concepts aimed at screening for, diagnose, and appropriately treating anemia, minimizing surgical, procedural, iatrogenic blood losses, and managing coagulopathic bleeding, and it all designed to improve patient-centered outcomes. So TXA is one of those multimodal strategies within patient blood management to uh, help decrease surgical blood loss. Um, patient blood management is a really hot topic. In 2010, the World Health Organization recognized patient blood management to promote the availability of transfusion alternatives. And then the American Medical Association identified blood transfusion as the, one of the most important healthcare-related overuse issues facing the world today. And now, more than ever, blood is a precious resource. Uh, post-pandemic, and we have global critical blood shortages. So really, patient blood management is all about doing more with less, and it allows us to close the imbalance between the supply and demand. And in 2021, the World Health Organization actually called for implementation of patient blood management as a standard global of care. They put out a policy statement that said there's an urgent need to implement patient blood management. And they actually said that this systematic, multidisciplinary, multi-professional concept uh, is needed to, to minimize risk factors for our patients and can significantly uh, cost-effectively improve health and clinical outcomes for hundreds of millions of medical and surgical patients, including our pregnant women, neonates, ch children, adolescents, and the population as a whole. Um, we have a new global definition of patient blood management. It's patient-centered, systematic, evidence-based approach 
to improve patient outcomes by managing and preserving a patient's own blood while promoting patient safety and empowerment. And who best to implement patient blood management than our anesthesiologists who are the perioperative specialists and they play a, a really a special role in patient blood management. And who best for a patient population to concentrate our efforts of blood conservation than our most vulnerable pediatric uh, patients. So I believe that future efforts should close the gap between the knowledge and scientific evidence that we have for antifibrinolytic use and patient, you know, all these patient blood management initiatives and really um, then look into whether changes in our practices along what we know by uh, scientific evidence and some of those expert consensus guidelines that will be coming out uh, will helpfully improve patient outcomes. Uh, so um, I look forward to you know, the research coming out on this going forward. And for those of you that don't do craniosynostosis surgery, all of these different modalities for example, antifibrinolytics can be uh, also applied to your patient population. Um, you know, any high-risk uh, patient population for blood loss and bleeding, you can employ uh, tranexamic acid, uh, antifibrinolytics, and other patient blood management strategies. Fantastic. Um, you've just made me think of one more question. In the patient blood management strategy, are there any things we can do before the child gets to the OR? I'm so glad you asked me that question. I have a big smile on my face. Um, we know that about 25% of our patients are anemic preoperatively. Uh, we've, there's lots of work coming out about preoperative anemia, and that's just in industrialized countries. We know that in other countries, uh, for example, there's some work being done in South Africa on anemia in children, that it can be up to 50% of our patient population. In Australia, some... Um, some populations have a 50% or more preoperative anemia. So at the contemplation of surgery, good expert consensus guidelines recommend that patients be screened for anemia, mostly it's iron deficiency anemia, and be treated um, four to six weeks beforehand. Uh, at Boston Children's Hospital, we've started a preoperative anemia optimization protocol and uh, we have really turned around our craniosynostosis surgery uh, in that when they're starting with a normal to high hematocrit beforehand, uh, we have uh, a larger blood volume uh, and a more robust red cell count. And I think that gives our patients uh, a less of a chance of uh, needing uh, blood uh, transfusions for those cases. So yes, um, preoperative anemia, is really an under-recognized and under-treated uh, problem in our pediatric patients. Thank you so much, Dr. King and Dr. Gooby. This has been a very interesting discussion. We appreciate you taking the time to chat and we look forward to more contributions from you and your team. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Dest. You're a wonderful interviewer and uh, I, <laughs> I look forward to <laughs> more work on this topic. Thank you. Fantastic. So that wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for November 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website shortly. Please follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia and do join us for next month's featured article of the month. Until then, cheers. <laughs>